four bullet points on a post-it note. Yes, it's the necessarily brief, for reasons I'll go into, ruminations on the latest news about Ukraine and the Russia-West negotiations. I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. So, having spent all yesterday recording chapters for the audiobook of my forthcoming The Weaponization of Everything, which incidentally comes out in hard copy and Kindle forms on Tuesday in the UK and Europe, and then February for the US and the rest of the world, it means that my throat is not at its best, and therefore I'm not in an ideal position to give you a full podcast. On the other hand, I did want to just cover a few points that have arisen from the most latest developments. And as I collate the various requests for Mystic Mark's predictions, which hopefully will be in the next full-length podcast, instead I just thought I would do very short, sweet, and based on just four lines on a post-it note, and thus perhaps it could well be not the most extensive or indeed coherent of thoughts. But anyway, I just wanted to fill the gap before the next full-length podcast. So, first things first. Talks are continuing after the Blinken-Lavrov meeting in Geneva, which is a very good thing for a series of reasons. Especially after, and this is where I alienate a particular chunk of my audience... I think that the, well, NATO, but essentially the United States mishandled the first week of negotiations by making it so obvious so quickly and so bluntly the extent to which they really wanted to talk or confine the talk just to some very narrow and very technical issues about missile placement, military exercises and the like, when the Russians were coming with this huge and expansive agenda about the whole of European security. Now, The basic tactic of taking a big topic and then trying to canalise it down to some smaller issues where both you think you can actually reach some agreement and where the agreement is not going to prove too problematic for you makes absolute sense. However, and look, I mean, this is difficult, obviously, not being in the room. I'm just simply basing this on all the various reporting we've seen. But it does seem to be that we know the... The psychology of the moment was lost. The Russians, while to an extent they they want the chance to shout at the West and to tell the West all the many, many things it's done wrong, and they want to have this broad agenda at least on the table in theory, if not not necessarily in in practice, they didn't get that opportunity. They didn't get that, that, that chance. And I think from their point of view, it really made them feel that they weren't being taken seriously. And I think that might explain the massive cyber attacks against Ukraine, as well as the all-too-visible movement of forces from the Russian Far East to closer to the Ukrainian border. This time, though, firstly by actually having it being a Blinken-Lavrov, i.e. a higher-level summit, and, and secondly because of how it seems to, again, usual caveats, seems to have been handled, it looks as if it was more 
constructive in that sense. Not constructive in the sense of necessarily reaching any particular agreement, but constructive in the sense of the Russians at least got a sense that it was worth continuing to talk. And I think this is a crucial thing because, unfortunately, you know, we are products of the um, instant social media, Twitter retweet gratification and Netflix binge watching and instant food delivery era in that we have a tendency now to assume that things have to happen and should happen and can happen quickly. The only quick result we could have got from the talks would have been a total breakdown. Anything positive is going to take time. And that's why I think, you know, those who, people who are, are looking for instant results really must dial down their expectations. Not least because, for me, one of the crucial things about the whole process of negotiation, which, remember, is not a reward for good behaviour, is all the more important to talk to the people with whom you have serious, even violent disagreements. The key thing is, in some ways, to use this as an opportunity not just to talk the Russians down, not just to make them feel as if they are being treated as a great power, but also to use this to try and identify what are the real red lines. Yes, there is this ridiculous, expansive and overambitious shopping list that Putin has put forward. That's clearly not going to happen. What we do have need to get a sense of is, well, where might there be scope for agreement? And again, that's, that's not something that they're going to put out on the table at first. They're going to want to be haggled down as little as possible. So this is going to be a lengthy, painful process. But the more we can keep it going, the more we can give the Russians a sense that it's actually worthwhile still being at the table, the better a thing that is. And I think it's particularly interesting that the Russians are getting something that they've been asking for, which is actually a written counter-proposal to their initial draft treaties. Now, again, why this matters, apart from the fact that, again, it makes them feel big and powerful that they get America to have to go and do some homework, is also because actually any written document then becomes the basis for all kinds of lengthy discussion about exact clauses and exact meanings and what can be added and what could be subtracted. First of all, precisely the kind of detailed, pedantic, grind-the-other-side-down diplomacy at which actually the Russians tend to excel, so clearly they want to move it in that direction. But also, again, it provides a basis for further discussion. Anything that gives the reasons why Moscow still needs to be at the table, anything that gives them a chance to think that, well, next time we might be able to get some movement on paragraph 7, is a good thing. And final point I'd make on this, it's also crucial to remember... Is this about Ukraine? Is this about wider European security architecture? Well, it's about both. And I think this is the thing, one one can't just make this about Ukraine purely, at which point, unfortunately, we do have the spectre of great powers determining the future of little ones, which is, I don't think, both both an actual precedent we want to be setting anymore and also not the right optics. But the point is, Ukraine is significant because, above all, the context of the the wider concerns of the Russians about the European security architecture. If they felt that everything was fine there, then, although I'm not saying it would be easy for them to cope with the idea of a Ukraine that was primarily looking westward, it wouldn't have quite that same existential security edge to it. Likewise, obviously, if Ukraine was, was perfectly happy being part of Russia's sphere of influence... 
we probably wouldn't be in this position. It's the concatenation of them both that is so important, and that's why they need to be treated together. Of course, the talking is going on, and that's a good thing, but it doesn't mean that the risk is in any way going away. There's really several ways of thinking about this. There is still the full-on Machiavellian, which incidentally I always think is unfair, because actually Machiavelli as the prince was much less of a sort of how-to idiot's guide to dictatorship, as many people suggest, and much more of a satire. But anyway, we are left with the term as it's used. There is a very Machiavellian notion that these negotiations are actually meant to fail, that the Russians have established such a ridiculous ask and are holding to it precisely because they want the talks to reach a stage when they say this is not working and then they have an excuse for some kind of military escalation in Ukraine. I'm really not convinced that I think this is credible at this stage anyway. I mean, how much... um, How much justification do you need? How much of an excuse? No one actually invades a country because negotiations notionally are about wider, different issues break down. You know, if the negotiations were purely about, I don't know, the status of the Donbass or even Russo-Ukrainian relations, that's one thing. But they have now become something very, very different. To say, well, we don't like what NATO's doing, so we're going to invade Ukraine, I don't know. That, that to me, doesn't sound plausible. There is obviously still the scope for provocations, false flag attacks has been, been warned of. But I just feel that this is the kind of rationale which helps explain. If you are convinced that the Russians do intend to invade anyway, and you're trying to explain away the negotiations, this is the way you go. And by the way, it is worth noting that you know we've seen all these massive movements... There's talk about, all oh, this many troops around the Ukrainian border. The interesting thing is, I mean, firstly, that the, the Kiev is much more relaxed, it seems, than Washington, which, you know, if there was a serious threat, you, you'd think they'd be more alarmed. But also, actually, most of what we've seen moving has been materiel. It's been tanks and guns and the like, not the people who go in them. And these figures of X and a thousand troops tend to be based on, well, if this is a battalion tactical group's worth of kit... Well, a battalion tactical group is around 900, maybe 1,000 people. Therefore, we'll count it as 900 or 1,000 people. It's not necessarily that. If and when we see people moving, which unfortunately can be done relatively quickly, let's be honest. But nonetheless, you know, if, if we see that happening, then I think that's a, a more alarming moment. Okay, so that was the Machiavellian rationale. Then there's the, shall we say, semi-Machiavellian which is that actually that this is a continuing delay in order to build up forces. Again, I don't really buy that. On the principle, for first of all, they have a lot of forces. Secondly, when they actually start getting right, right at the point of being able to attack with all the, the guys in their machines and so forth, well, that's going to be visible and detectable. I just don't see the, the diplomatic advantage, really, if you're anyway planning on attacking. So we move to what I regard as the sort of the most kind of practical, pragmatic way of understanding it. Look, these talks, this whole process could yet fail. I certainly don't think that Putin is entirely unwilling to use military force. But on the other hand, I do not think that it is his plan A. This is the point I've been making all along. If he feels that coercive diplomacy, i.e. bullying, gets him something that he feels is good enough, well, that's great. Yes, you know, he, he needs something to be able to scale down his forces, but, you know, given that officially he hasn't made any 
threats to invade or similar, quite the opposite. He has a certain amount of room to manoeuvre. So I think that, you know, he still wants something. And however much it may stick in our craw now, but part of the art of diplomacy is precisely to think, what can we give him that doesn't actually seriously compromise Western security integrity, Ukraine's sovereignty, and yet can be packaged to Putin as something that he can think and certainly can spin as a victory? I mean, unfortunately, there is a lot of this. And although people want to say, no, no, we must stand firm, remember, the harder a line we take, then the more deterrence we need to bring to the table, and frankly, I don't know what else we've got. And secondly, the more chance there is that there will be a military escalation. How far are we truly willing to fight for Western purity of morals and values to the last Ukrainian? We have an interesting new debate that's opening up of people actually trying to point out to the things that everyone knows but no one says, such as the fact that Crimea is lost. Crimea is not going back to Ukraine. And I don't even mean anytime soon. I mean, I think for the foreseeable future. Donbass is one thing. Donbass could be returned, however indigestible it would be. Crimea, no. And to pretend, though, that we will not accept that notion. Well, look, de facto, it's, it's Russian now. Could we not gain something by recognizing? And I don't mean fully recognizing because it was still an invasion, but accepting the realities. So, I mean, there is some scope still for, for negotiation. There is still scope, unfortunately, for war. Though on that point, we've seen some maps doing the rounds of late showing potential Russian attacks, including ones that would actually be geared towards taking Kiev and rolling all the way to Ukraine's western border. I've got to be honest. I mean, I'm, you know, as a, a thought exercise, if people want to invent, well, how would this be done? Fair enough. The trouble is these graphics, these maps with all these dynamic arrows have a disconcerting tendency to then get reproduced on social media, in newspapers and so forth, as if they are truly plausible notions. I do not think this is in the slightest bit conceivable. The idea that the Russians would actually try to take all of Ukraine and hold all of Ukraine unless there is such an extraordinary outbreak of mad cow disease, not just within the Kremlin, but also within the Defence Ministry and the General Staff, then, I'm sorry, I, I do think we can rule this out. Military escalation, yes, but it's going to be relatively limited. Limited does not necessarily mean weak. I mean, it'll, it'll probably come as a shattering blitzkrieg if it comes, but the idea that they, they plan to annex Ukraine as a whole, come on, that's just not viable. The third point I want to make is about the, the resurgence of talk in Russia about the recognition as genuine states of the so-called People's Republics, the LNR and the DNR, the Lugansk and Donetsk People's Republics. Now, for some time, this has been something of a call amongst nationalists in Russia, and it's been bubbling away, and every now and then it sort of pops up, and more recently it has begun also popping up in the kind of pundit circle who are often people who have a certain line into, if not the Kremlin, but part of the concentric circles of support and gossip around it, and are often pushing the idea because they think that's what the Kremlin would like or that it would make them look prescient. 
But what's really striking is now that the Communist Party has actually tabled a motion in the Duma calling for full diplomatic recognition of the statelets. And with one of the co-signatories being Sergei Kalashnikov, the singularly appropriately named chairman of the Commonwealth of Independent States Committee within the Duma, you know, it is clear that this is coming from the Communist Party leadership who are presenting it, technically rightly, as a manifesto commitment of theirs. Now, it's quite interesting that I actually have it to the point of elevated to parliamentary debate. My first thought, actually, was that this makes the option of recognising the statelets less likely. Because if this was something that the Kremlin was planning, why on earth would it give the Communist Party, you know, systemic opposition that also from time to time bubbles into unsystemic opposition? But why give the Communist Party the chance to then say, you see what happened, we put it forward, and Putin bowed to our will? Okay, so that that was thought number one. But then I thought a little bit more, and then in here maybe I'm going into excessive Machiavellianism, By letting the communists raise it, it means that it can be floated as a trial balloon without the Kremlin having to put any of its own credibility behind it. So in some ways, it can just see what what this means, see how this is responded to more widely, both within Russia and, and without, and then decide. Secondly, it means that if the Kremlin does do this, it can be presented not as Kremlin imperialism, but as bowing to a groundswell of opinion. The Russian people want this. And if the Russian people want this, then we are loyal servants of the Russian people. So, you know, it's an attempt to try and turn what will be an entirely um, you know, top-down decision into something that can be spun as a voice of the people, even though it's worth noting there is absolutely no evidence of any kind of broad groundswell of Russian support for this, not least because recognition would not just simply be something that presumably would be a, used as the excuse overtly to base troops in the statelets. But because Moscow can't let these statelets then dissolve into hunger and anarchy, then actually, if anything, it would mean that not only would the current levels of support have to be maintained, they might well actually have to be increased. And again, at the moment, it is not as if the Russians are saying, we have way too much money, please find other impoverished regions that you could spend it on instead of us. And there's a final point, though, Actually, by, by letting the communists take point on this, this could actually be, in some ways, a degree of, shall I say, compensation to the Communist Party, and particularly Zyuganov and his fellow septuagenarians. Following the recent, in some ways, assault upon the Communist Party, particularly you know, the, the Rashkin case about which I've talked about recently, and it's a way also of strengthening the official leadership of the Communist Party. Remember, at the moment, you know, there is a clear concern within the Kremlin's political technologists about which way the Communist Party will go. Will it actually end up being captured by figures, younger figures, who are more critical of the Kremlin and more willing to actually be a real opposition? Or if uh, business-as-usual candidates are placed in to replace Yuganov, who surely has to go at some point, does that mean that the party will actually split? Or will it just simply hemorrhage supporters into other more critical oppositionist groups? So actually, it may well be that what they really want to do is to buttress the power of the kind of conservative, house-trained, systemic opposition leadership by making them seem as if they're more powerful, more credible, more significant than they really are, in order both to 
strengthen their own position within the party and strengthen the, shall I say, official Communist Party in the eyes of the population. As I said, that might be a little bit too sophisticated. But to be perfectly honest, I think that the two clever by half political machinations we find in Russia are much, much more commonly coming from the political technologists of the presidential administration and geared towards domestic policy than actually being geared towards foreign policy. I think we we have a tendency to regard Russian foreign policy, particularly at the moment, as being a little bit too subtle, a little bit too mind-gamey, aha, but on the third hand, we could do this. No, actually things are often pretty much what they seem. But anyway, in thoroughly unsatisfying conclusion then, I'm still not sure what's going on. No one except Putin, his innermost circle, and his confessor can have any idea really what what the current plan is, and what the current plan is may well not be what next week's plan is. It's still up in the air. War is not inconceivable. And I say war, I mean some kind of military escalation beyond the, the current undeclared one in the Donbass. But on the other hand, nor is it any closer, I would suggest. Recognition of the statelets is, I think, more likely than it was a couple of weeks ago. I don't think it's yet been decided on as policy. Again, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens in response to this KPRF proposal. Either the state will use it as a chance to slap it down, again, as a signal both to the statelets and to the outside world, or else they will allow the idea to be entertained. So that's, that's something to be watching. But more to the point, at the moment, the talks are going on. And that's good. But on the other hand, my capacity to talk is being taxed pretty much to the fullest. So with your permission, I will end there and a full length podcast will follow shortly, I hope. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. Ты